So glad you're here. You know, we have a saying around here, and we, I say it often, um, that whenever we discover a belief that we hold that is contrary to the Word of God, we are compelled to change that belief to line up with Scripture. And the same is true whenever we just look at our practices. Whenever we have a practice that we discover is contrary to the Word of God, we're compelled to change that belief, that practice to line up with Scripture. And, and you know, that, that shapes the way we live and what we do. It, it, it's why I'm so proud of our church with Thursday and Thanksgiving week as, as the mission, through the mission we've seen uh, just bringing a lot of help to people. And, and, and I'm just so proud of our church. Thank you for all of you that served uh, in so many incredible ways. And, uh, and, and those, it's the word of God that moves us to those practices, like our baptisms today. Oh, my goodness. Was that cool or what? You know, um, the, the fact that we baptize, and you may not have been baptized. That's a call. That's a biblical call to, to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And we've seen it at every level today. Um, and, and, and the way we do baptism, it's biblical. And, and I just, I just, uh, it's just, those are just two examples of how God's word shapes our beliefs and our practices. Now, um, Brandon, who plays bass at our church, said to me last night, uh, he said, uh, look, if, if OSU comes back, you got to wear something OSU-ish, cowboyish. This is the best I got right here. I got, it's kind of orange, so come on, all you cowboy fans. It's, it's orange-ish, it's, it's all right. I see, I, see, I see your sweatshirt. You wore that on purpose. That's good. Hey, that's cool. Um, you know, um, all my life, you know, I, I grew up in Moore, which is right next to Norman, so I've been an OU fan my whole life. Uh, but I'm not anti-OSU. I've always had people in my life that bled orange, right? Uh, some of you, I know some of you people do that. And, uh, you know, one of those guys is Justin Beatles. Justin is a, a, a dear friend of mine, and he bleeds orange like Anna Grell over here. And, uh, and, and Justin, um, I met him when I was, I just started at my very first church in, 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 I was 19. It was in western Oklahoma, in Thomas, Oklahoma. Justin grew up in that church. When I met him, Justin was a, a year older than me. I was a sophomore. He was a junior at OSU, Oklahoma State. And uh, he uh, had just finished, I think he had just finished being the FFA state president. So he was a, quite a leader because that's a big deal. And, um, and Justin, though, when I met him, was not walking with the Lord. He had drifted from the Lord. And like, like we all have a tendency to drift from the Lord, right? D- Justin had gone to college, and, and his dad, when, he, when I became the youth minister at the church, his dad said, hey, you ought to meet our youth minister. You might like him. And he walked in the door, and we were instant friends. It was like, oh, my goodness, where have you been all my life? And we just were instant friends. And uh, that summer, Justin came home, and God used him in my life. When I went to Thomas, I did not know the difference between a tractor and a combine. I want you to know there's a difference between those two pieces of equipment. And, uh, and I didn't know that. I was a city boy, and, and I didn't know what working cattle was like. Justin had cattle, and they farmed wheat, and I plowed for the first time. And, and man, you know what? These, this farming community taught me a lot about God, about my Bible. I mean, it was fascinating. It was an amazing experience for me. And I loved serving there. 
But you know, as I met Justin, he came home that summer and worked, worked the harvest, the wheat harvest in his, in his farm. And, and, and you know what? I watched him stop drifting. I watched him go from drifting away from the Lord to following the Lord again. He went to camp with us, and, and, and that was a summer that he will say in his testimony, God just used that summer to, bring him, to, to, to confront him and to cause him to come back to the Lord. And, uh, you know, today, Justin's the pastor at Countryside Baptist Church, or Countryside Church in Stillwater. And I'm so proud of him. Like, he's, a, he's, he's such a great leader. He's one of the most, uh, uh, in, in my opinion, one of, the, one of the most effective pastors in Oklahoma right now. And, and I got to watch him go from drifting to following the Lord. You know, um, a long time ago, my youth ministry used to talk about sin. That sin, and this is a famous statement, he didn't make it up, but, but it's been around for a long time. You probably heard it, that sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin has a price tag higher than you want to pay. And, you know, Justin discovered, and he would talk about in his testimony how he would lay down at night and feel conviction from the Lord and feel like, man, this isn't delivering, this isn't right. And, and you know what? Sin just doesn't deliver. It will never deliver for you. And, you know, in months, we've been in Ezra and Nehemiah. We started in August. Today, we're finishing these two books. Now, when you think about these two Old Testament books, we're in Nehemiah 13 today. And, and, and honestly, Nehemiah 13 is an incredible warning about the drift. Be careful for the drift. Now, I, I pray that God gives us real understanding in Nehemiah 13 today. But, but how I want to understand and process Nehemiah 13 is I want to look at Nehemiah 13 through a lens that we see in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So I know you've already turned in your Bibles to Nehemiah 13. Keep your finger there because we're going to be in Nehemiah 13. But I want us to first of all look at 1 Corinthians 10. So flip over there, 1 Corinthians 10, because 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us how important these Old Testament stories are. You know, it's important for us, like, like Joe kind of mentioned when, when I said, hey, we're going to study Ezra and Nehemiah. He's like, oh, well, we're kind of New Testament people, right? And, and so often in our churches, we look at the New Testament. But it's important for us to understand the Old Testament. And that's why we spent since August in these two Old Testament books. 1 Corinthians 10 gives us some insight into that. So stand with me. We have a practice. If you're visiting today, we stand in honor of God's Word just as a posture to say this is God's word to us, and we're, I just want to read out loud verses 11 through 13 in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, understand the context of this, of 1 Corinthians 10, are these Old Testament stories. And verse 11 says this, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape 
so that you may be able to endure it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. you. May be seated. Now, now you see in this passage, let's keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 10, you see some, that, that the Old Testament provides critical examples for us, right? We see that. Um, the Old Testament, when you look at these stories in the Old Testament, these are believers in a, in a coming Messiah. Like the prophets spoke about a Messiah that was to come. So salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. Jesus just hadn't come yet in the Old Testament. And they were looking for a coming resurrected Messiah. And we, as new, in 2021, we look back, backwards in time, at the, at the cross, at the resurrection, and a Messiah who came. And we're going to look at this next week as we turn our face to Christmas. And, but but like, like Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is an important time in the history of God's people, Because remember, we said this over and over again, after Ezra and after Nehemiah, there's not another prophet that comes on the scene for 400 years, over 400 years. So so they were constructing the altar. Remember, Ezra was the construction of the altar, and this was the altar that that when Jesus died, the, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. It was this altar that was rebuilt. It was this city, like Nehemiah talks about, the the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the repopulation of the city of Jerusalem, which is the very city that Christ would enter and and Christ would perform all the miracles or a lot of the miracles and and Christ would weep over and and right outside the city was where Christ was crucified and then he rose from the dead in this place. That all through history, the, the world would look at the Messiah by looking at this altar in this city. This is very important. Now, it's interesting as we think about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were, pushed, they were pointing the world to the coming Messiah. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 is interesting because it talks about us, these stories that we learn, up, upon the end of the ages has come with, with us. You know, we're, we're called to prepare the world for the second coming of the Messiah. That's interesting, isn't it? That after the apostles, after we got the canon, the Bible, uh, no, other, no other addition is necessary, right? We're in this period of time where no other word of God is needed in our lives until the second coming of Christ. It's really interesting how these things are connected. But 1 Corinthians 10 helps us understand that as we understand the Old Testament and these stories that we need to, it makes us strong, right? But we need to be careful lest we fall. And then those, you ought to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13 because no temptation has seized you how I memorized it except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, right? I think Nehemiah 13 gives us some insight into these ways out, these doors that we can walk through, these, this warning of drifting. Now look at Nehemiah 13. Now if you're following along in our notes today, uh, the first kind of idea in the notes is following the Lord takes constant attention. And this is, a, this is a big idea for this whole message, that, that following the Lord takes constant attention. 
Why? Because spiritual attacks are relentless, aren't they? They're constant. Like, like we're going to always face the, the temptation to drift. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, though, we, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, and when you see these baptisms today, what are they saying? They're saying, hey, Christ called me, Christ, Christ saved me, and, and he came into my life, he now lives in me, and their old life was buried, and they're going to live a new life. That's what baptism means, because the Holy Spirit gives power, gives direction, gives guidance. Now, now, Nehemiah 13, it's crazy because if you've been with us, you've seen how God has moved in crazy ways. Like, it's so fascinating how God rose up these, these kings of Persia to fund the building of the altar, the building of the temple. God gave them power. They worked, and God's people came together and forgave one another and worked in incredible ways. They came back to the Word of God. And yet in Nehemiah 13, the whole book ends with a massive confrontation. Like Nehemiah confronts God's people. And it's fascinating how he confronts them. How do you handle confrontation? Like when you're confronted, how do you respond? Do you respond with like, dude, stay out of my business? Do you respond to confrontation like, with humility, with gratitude. How do you respond when, when you confront somebody else? Do you go, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry about this, but I probably ought to say something. Or do you have confidence in confrontation? You know, as, as followers of Christ and, and as a church, we always need to hear confrontation. Conviction is good, right? We're learning this. We're learning that conviction is good. And Hebrews 12, 5, and 6, a good verse to write down, just so you'll have this in your heart. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Fascinating, isn't it? God convicts us. Romans 2, 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patient, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? That, that when we're confronted, that's, that's good. That's, grace of, that's the grace of God. Now, when you look at Nehemiah 13, scan it with me, because I want to just, you can break it down. And I think that's good to, a good practice as we look at the Bible to break it down. You see in verses 1 through 3, this uh, renewal of separation. They, they're, they're saying we need to separate from the peoples of the land. Then you look in verses 4 through 14, Nehemiah cleanses the temple. In 15 through 22, he enforces the Sabbath day. Uh, in 23 through 29, he cleanses the people because the people had slipped back into uh, sin. They had fallen. They had drifted here. Then the book concludes in verse 30 and 31 with this summary of what Nehemiah accomplished. And, and just you see this man of prayer. It's so cool. Now, in, verse, in chapter 13, there's, a, there's an idea that I, I, I pray we, 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 we embrace, we lean into, and it's the idea that conviction and confrontation are indicators of a blessed life. Let's think about that. 
conviction, confrontation, those are indicators of being blessed. Now, it's an interesting day to be a pastor. I guess it's always been a pressure. It's not anything new today. But, uh, but you know, there's a temptation as a pastor. I want everybody to feel encouraged when they come to church. I want them to be glad they came to church. Oh, that was an encouraging sermon, pastor. That, was a, that, was, that lifted my spirits, pastor. You know, and I don't want you to come to church and feel bad, right? Uh, but the problem with that temptation is that often when I, read, when I read the Word of God, I am confronted. I am convicted. I can't stay the same. I can't go, oh, I'm good. I'm all right. Actually, I read the Bible and I go, huh, I better change that. It's like my wife's version of looking in the mirror and my version of looking in the mirror. I've used this before. My wife, when she looks in the mirror, she's like getting up and close. And, and I don't want to get that close. I, I, I stand like way back and go, I look good today. All right. I mean, I, mean, I, I had to wear an OSU outfit today. Uh, my, I left a little early this morning. My wife was still in bed. I stood in the dark and said, honey, does this look okay? Okay, thanks. And I just walked out the door. I didn't even, give her, I didn't even turn the light on. Um, but... But, you know, I find that the closer I get to the Lord, it's like the closer I get to a mirror, they go, huh, I probably changed some of that. Conviction is a good thing. And Nehemiah 13, I think, helps us learn to lean into conviction. Can I push us to be a people that leans into conviction? We lean into correction. And look at what they did. And, and, and you see this. There's a lesson here. For us to avoid a drift, we should work to understand the word of God. This is something they did. All through Ezra and Nehemiah, what are they doing? They're working to understand the word of God. Look at verse 1. They're doing it again. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. So, so, so they're coming together and they're reading the Bible. They're, they're reading the book of Moses. And, and this is an important practice for us. This is why we are a church that says, let's be in the word of God. Let's allow the word of God to shape our beliefs, our practices. Very important. Because as they were reading, they were probably reading Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. Because I can honestly make that assumption because look at what it says next. They were reading the law of Moses, and in it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, what's going on here? The, uh, you know, you got to know a little Old Testament here, and so let me just give you a crash course if you're not aware of these. The Ammonites and the Moabites were a problem. They were a problem for God's people all through history. Uh, they were descendants from Lot. Remember, Lot was the one that was in Sodom and Gomorrah that, that moved, in, it was, it moved into Sodom, and, uh, and Lot had some struggles. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting as you think about this 
reference to Balaam, that's Numbers 22, and, and the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they hired Balaam to curse God's people. And, and, and here's what God did. He turned that blessing into curse, that, that cursing into blessing. This is what God does, what, what Satan means for evil, God uses for good. And in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah comes and he addresses the problem again because 30 years before, what they had done is they had embraced the ideologies of people that didn't follow the Lord. And Nehemiah's going, whoa, whoa, hang on. Look what we've done. We're reading the word of God and, and it's pointing out we're drifting We're drifting back into our old habits. Remember why they were in bondage, why they were not in Jerusalem in the first place? Because they had rebelled against God. They had replaced gods with the ideologies, the philosophies of everybody around them. Now, some people look at this and go, oh, that seems awfully racist of them. This is not racism at all. This is a drift in theological, in, 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 in a true understanding, a biblical understanding of God. And it points to us. And I think we see over and over again in Ezra and Nehemiah how important it is for us to be a people that know the word of God. We know the Bible. And and, and as we know the Bible, this doesn't make us arrogant or smarter than other people. What it does is it moves us to a loyalty, to a, to a, 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 a service to the Lord that is passionate, that is obedient, that is humble. You know, Nehemiah is confronting them because they're, they're drifting away from their good theology. And you know how you study, now as Baptists, we, 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 we kind of pride ourselves in our theological understanding. But sometimes we get a little arrogant. We've got to stay away from that. Because when I study my theology correctly, you know what I've discovered is that it makes me more humble, it makes me more uh, gracious, it makes me more... Um, grateful. When I start studying theology and I get arrogant, I get like, man, you guys are dumb. You guys don't know that? That's not studying theology correctly. And Nehemiah is confronting them because they're, they're embracing teachings that are not from God's word. And you see that here. It's glaring in Nehemiah 13. But you know what else you see? To to avoid the drift, we've got to stay close to the Word of God. To avoid the drift, we also have the second thing. We we need to stay away from ungodly leaders. Notice this. Verse verse 4 continues, Eliashib, the priest, he'd been put put in charge of these storerooms. Notice this. Um, In the house of God. And, And Eliashib, I think that's how you say his name, Eliashib, is the high priest who is in charge of the temple. Now, the next words, in, in, when you look at, at verse 3, it's shocking. Shocking what it says, and we, I don't want to miss it. Because um, it says that he was a, a relative of Tobiah. Look, Nehemiah's like, What? You know what that means? Tobiah, you remember him? He's earlier in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'm not going to go into all those details because we talked about him before, but, but Tobiah was the one that went against Ezra and Nehemiah. And now, Eliashab, the priest, he is family members to Tobiah. 
He's a relative of Tobiah, which shows that they went back to this intermarrying uh, of people that didn't follow the Lord. Now, you got to realize that some people look at this flippantly and go, man, God's people were racist, see? No, it's not about racism. It's about following the Lord. It's about, it's about idolatry. Now, this, this problem of intermarrying with idolaters, hear this, it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Look at verse 5. Eliashab, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. Now, these are rooms that they had committed that, that were in the temple. And, and now, and, and look down in, in, in verse 7, Nehemiah tells us that this was a room in the courts of God's house, which this is part of the temple complex. This is, this is part of their worship. And so what is happening is, is Tobiah is living there, and this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. There is an ungodly leader in God's house at the altar. And this means that, means that Tobiah had influence. He was, had the opportunity to pull strings and manipulate and lead God's people away. And here's the thing, every time God's people start to lean into ungodly influences, that's a problem. And right there, that's a, that's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And, and, and I don't want to miss this. Look at verse 8. Now, Nehemiah hears this, and he's mad. Look what he says in verse 8. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can you imagine that meeting? I mean, he's walking up going, hey, what's, bam! I mean, throwing, uh, about pulled a muscle right there. Um, but, um, but, I mean, he's throwing it out of the house. This is not like, oh, I don't want to hurt your feelings. He's mad. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, Nehemiah right here, he, this is righteous anger. This is, this is like, hey, look, we're, we're not going to go there. We're, we're done. We're coming back to what the Bible says. We're coming back to following Jesus. I mean, it was Yahweh here. But he's, and I want you to notice, look at verse 11. You see the confrontation here. Three separate times. Verse 11, he says, I rebuked the officials. Verse 17, I rebuked the nobles. Verse 25, I rebuked them. So it's the leaders that were, that were being influenced. And they, they were leaning into ungodly voices and ungodly leaders. And this is something we've got to do. We've got to make sure we don't follow this example. And it's tragic as you, as you understand, and, and if you go back and listen to all the messages in Ezra and Nehemiah, how God has worked, and now they're falling back into the same trap. But look what Nehemiah does in verse 13. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, 
Zadok the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur and son of Mataniah. Look at this. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So, so Nehemiah says, I'm going to get some reliable leaders. And this is what we have to do. We got to recognize that all through history, God provides reliable leaders. There are reliable men, reliable women that say, that say look, we are going to stay true to the word of God. And we've got to be a church that constantly leans into reliable voices. And I'm glad that God always provides this. Verse 14, and again, you see a little insight into Nehemiah as a man of prayer. Let's not forget this, because Nehemiah was inspiring by his prayer life. And we got to remember, remember, he's a, he's a politician. He's not a priest. He's a layman. He's just a, a I mean, he's a leader. He works for the, the king of Persia. But, but, but look, he's, he's a layman. But he's a man of prayer. Don't miss that. Verse 14, remember me, oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. He's praying, Lord, I don't want all this to be wasted. And, and this is important. I, I mean, I think about the work of this church. I, I serve on the IMB with a guy who's a pastor in, at First Baptist Charleston, South Carolina. And, and, and man, Marshall's church is so cool. It is like 330-something years old. His church is. Think about that. His church has been here for 330 years. He hadn't been the pastor that long, right? But their church is older than our, our nation. That's a faithful church, folks. And I look at, 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 at what's happening in, in, in 2021 all over Tulsa, all over Oklahoma, all over the nation, that churches are shutting their doors. Oh my goodness, that's impacted me. Churches are dying all around us. Why? I think because they've drifted. And that's why I look at this church and say, Lord, may we learn from these Old Testament stories so we do not drift, so we do stay faithful, so, so this church continues to share the gospel until Jesus returns. Isn't that the story you want to write? Isn't that the story you want God to write through us? Absolutely. And, and boy, you see Nehemiah putting reliable leaders in place. That helps us avoid the drift. We also see in Nehemiah 13, and, and let's understand this a little bit. It's hard with our New Testament mind to understand this. Uh, to avoid the drift, we need to prioritize time with God and his people. We prioritize time. I mean, we're, we're in an online hybrid still, right? I mean, many of us are online today, and I'm so grateful we have the technology. We live at a time we can do this. But, but let's not forget the need to be face-to-face as well. Let's not forget the need to, to, to I mean, we need a hug, man, isn't it? Don't we sometimes? We need a high five. We need to have somebody to look in our eyeball. It's easy to hide behind a screen. And, and look, you see this, 
in, in, in Nehemiah 13, to avoid the drift, we've got to prioritize time with God's people. Look at verse 15. Let me explain it a little bit. In those days, I saw Judah. I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes, figs of all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Now the Sabbath, what was that intended to be? They, Nehemiah's warning them, don't, don't forsake the Sabbath. And, and that was the time that God's people would, would reserve for the Lord, would, would meditate on, on how God had moved. And, and, you know, the Sabbath was for worship. It was to be respected. And, and people could connect with God on the Sabbath. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. And, and it was meant for a time for people to know the Lord. Now, th- there was a weekly Sabbath. There was a sabbatical year. Uh, and it was an opportunity for people to trust the Lord. Now, now let's understand this because we're New Testament people. And, and, and when I look at, you know, Romans 14, 5, and 6, right? That, that's a verse that, that helps me understand. We don't have to keep the Sabbath like the Old Testament law required. We have a little freedom with the Sabbath. That's why we worship on Sunday, which is not the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. But according to Romans 14, the, the, the 5 and 6, there's freedom there. But, but let's not miss the point of the Sabbath. It's, it's connecting with God. It's honoring the Lord. It's connecting with the people of God, with our heritage. And, and this is something that helps us stay, keep from drifting as we connect with one another. And we've seen over and over again through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's about a we, not just a me. And we need one another, and we need to know one another. And we're not just a, a church that you just pop in and, and leave and go, oh, that was a neat show. No, we're in life together. We walk together. We know one another. This is why you can't just visit this room. You've got to get involved in the life of our church. And you see, to avoid the drift, we connect with one another. And then, then lastly, when I think about this, this book, this study, Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a, there's a glaring lesson that I don't want us to miss. And it's this reality of uh, to avoid the drift, we need to work to live out a generational faith. Now, now we've seen this over and over again through these books. And and granted, as, I've st- as we started this book, I didn't realize about the, the, the generational shift in my family. But I saw my beautiful daughter over Thanksgiving, and Emily and Nathan, her husband, came. And, and I still look at Emily and remember those first time I saw those hazel eyes. I held her in my hands, literally. She was 5 pounds, 13 ounces. And I looked at her, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I got to take this thing home. And, and she grabbed my heart. And, and I just, I, I saw her grow up. I walked her down an aisle. And oh my goodness, now I'm married to a grandmother. She told us. And, and I looked at her over Thanksgiving. And there's a little bun in her, in her belly. And, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And over and over again, as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, you see this call of a generational faith. Look at verse 25. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, 
and pulled out their hair. I mean, this would be harder for me right now, but, um, but think about that. He's confronting them. And I made them an I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many, the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Verse 25 and 26. See, a lot of times people look at this this kind of moment and go, oh man, they're so racist. That's not what it's about. This, this, This is about a generational call. Don't marry, don't intermarry with idolaters. We know that that God was not a racist. I mean, we see in Exodus 2, 16, that Moses married a Midianite woman. Boaz married Ruth from the Moabites in Ruth chapter 4. This is not about other races. This is about marrying somebody that changes your religious beliefs. That's what Solomon did. Solomon married all these other women, and then he embraced their ideology, embraced their gods. And you know what that did? It wreaked havoc in the lives of God's people in the, in the following generations. Let me tell you something. We've got to have a generational vision in our families and in our church. And this is why we... We pray that God allows us to reach every generation. And oh my goodness, look at what happened today in the life of our church. We saw a child be baptized. We saw a teenager get baptized. Brennan's going to have to ask forgiveness because he told Pam's age to everybody in the room today. She's more mature. And you know what? We've seen this generational picture today and all through the Bible. When you see this, don't marry other women or or other men and women from other um, beliefs. This is a a religious statement about don't embrace the ideology of of people that don't know the Lord. And then look at verse 30. Let's come in for a landing here today. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. And I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I, provide, I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. And then he prays again, remember me, O God, for good. That's how he ends his book. You know, the book of Nehemiah begins with prayer. The book of Nehemiah ends with prayer. And and you know what you see? You see that following the Lord takes constant attention. It's going to require us to to, to make sure we don't drift. To make make sure that 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 we confront one another. I I think back of that of that time with Justin walking around his farm looking for some cow and talking about hey man, you'll never regret following Jesus. God's plan really is the best plan for your life. 
And you know, I'm so grateful for the the launch of a friendship that that we've been able now, we're we're both in our 50s. We met at 19 and 20. And we've constantly looked at one another and said, man, don't do that. Man, let's follow the Lord here. There's been a push to one another. And, and, and you know what, what has happened through that relationship? There's been, there's been conviction from the Lord, and conviction is good. And let me ask you a question. When's the last time you felt real conviction from the Lord and said, Lord, I embrace that conviction? You know, forever I'm a pastor that will give invitations. I will always give invitations. We're going to have an invitation right now. Joe's going to come. And you know what I pray today? That, that we don't drift. But can I specifically look at you? And say, say maybe the invitation today is to lean into conviction. Oh, you know that when God convicts you, when God confronts you, you know that's, that's good, right? You know that's a blessing, right? You know the scary thing? It, it, it's frightening that, for you not to feel any conviction. Let me tell you, if you don't ever feel conviction from the Lord, oh, you need to lean into that. You need to lean into what the Lord's presence in your life. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And you know what? God loves you so much that he confronts you with where you are. When God came to me and like, like he came to those that were baptized and said, look, you're not okay by yourself, Chris. You're a sinner and you need a savior. That was a confrontation. And you know what? The Lord opened my eyes to my need of a savior. And since then, it's been a constant journey of feeling conviction that's been good. It's been right. It's not always been comfortable. When's the last time you leaned in to conviction? How about today? How about right now? You know, um, I often give invitations and stand here totally by myself. And people say, does that bug you? Sort of. Yeah, to be honest, sort of. But I, I kind of just go, well, it's not my job. It's not my invitation. It's God's invitation. And I know that so often, many times people respond without me seeing it. Seeing it. And that's cool, too. That's, God teaches me to trust him, not myself. But I want to be a church. I pray we're, we're a people. And for the rest of our lives, we embrace correction, conviction from the Lord. Would you do that now? You don't have to come down. Oh, but you sure can. 
you could be right at your seat. Joe's going to lead us in this song that might be unfamiliar to you. But, oh, it's one that needs to be familiar to us. And so as he sings it, um, learn it. And let's respond to the Lord in this moment. Would you stand where you are? Even if you're online, there's someone online that will respond to you because we don't want to be distant online. We, Kelly Sanders is online because we want to know you. You can respond. Lord Jesus, we give you this time. We thank you for this moment. I thank you for Ezra and Nehemiah. And I pray that right now, we would be a people that lean into conviction. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Joe, lead us.